Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, we're here again at the beginning of a new Parashot cycle. We rolled the Torah scroll back this week. And of course, being in Breshit, we are now, once again, we turn to the account of the creation. God's creation, but also then our unfortunate fall as well. Our fall into sin and out of God's presence and his glory. As the name of this week's parasha fittingly declares, Breshit, we're in the beginning. That's where we're at. We're now back at the beginning of the story. I know I've pointed this out before, but this time of year always seems fitting to state it again. That to start here at the beginning, at the creation story, it just fits perfectly with having just come out of Sukkot. Having come out of that last feast of the annual cycle that we go through each year. Because what it points to and it reminds us is that this story that's throughout all the scriptures, there's a lot of individual events, a lot of individual stories that occur, but there's one, what's called a meta narrative. You know, there's one consistent story that they all add up to. And at the end of the day, that story is circular. It's all about getting back to where we started. If you think about it, last week we came to the end of a revolution around this circle story, the circular story. In the parasha last week, we saw the children of Israel camped on the east side of the Jordan, Jordan, now under the leadership of Joshua, about to enter into the land of Canaan. And that promised land that represented, that represented an Eden for those children of Israel, for that generation, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were about to cross the river, enter into that promised land, enter into a type of Eden for them. The reason it's considered, it's called milk of land and hunt, of milk and honey, and it's, it's a prosperous, it's a land that would provide for the people by God's blessing, just as Eden had provided for Adam and Eve at the beginning. Through the Feast of Sukkot, we focused on those times, both past, present, and future, when God's presence dwells among his people. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It's about remembering when God dwelt with the children of Israel in the wilderness, but also pointing forward to us dwelling with him in the New Jerusalem. And when we look at how the revolution of that circle ends, now we're back at the beginning. It's not that we rewound and went back. We just continue along the circle. We're back to that, that beginning point on it. We see the similarities between the beginning and the end. After all, think of what, hopefully you all read the parashah, and think of Eden. Think of the image of Eden that you have, even if you didn't read the parashah this week. You're all familiar with what was Eden like before chapter 3, before the fall. 
That picture is what we see, just maybe amplified even more, but it's, it's essentially what we see in Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 2, that the end of the story is the same picture that reads. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no nights there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of, wa of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So there's two things that really should jump out in the, the, that description there of Olam Haba. Two things as we think about comparing it to Eden. First of all, we see that the tree of life is present there. The tree which, unfortunately, mankind was removed from after our fall into sin and death. But nowhere else on this circle, nowhere else in the scriptures, do we see mankind having access to the tree of life except at the adjoining points of the circle. At the beginning, we have access. At the end, we have access. Nowhere else do we see that. Likewise, in this, in this vision that was given to John in Revelation, we see a city in which there's no need for a sun or, a, or the moon. For the glory of God alone provides the light for it. And so it was in those first days of the creation. For when God separated light from the darkness on the first day, the light existed without sun, without stars. Which, if you recall, were not created until the fourth day. As we read in Genesis 1, 3-5 and 14-19. through 19. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now how do we explain this? How do we explain there being light before the sun and the stars were created? Now there's all kinds of theories and there's all kinds of guesses out there as how was there light without the sun the stars? Religious scientists, theologians, They'll point out that our modern understanding of light and note that there are actually, we, we do understand today, there are other sources for light beyond its release from the nuclear um, fusion of the stars or even just a flame that produces 
light when, it, when, when an object combusts. And so they'll say, well, there is no contradiction to the Genesis story because there are these other sources. And there's even some astronomers and physicists today who hypothesize that light was actually created in the, at the initial point of the Big Bang. The Big Bang that formed the universe. And that it was only much later that the sun and the stars began to form. So even there, they, they acknowledge that light could exist prior to the sun and the stars. But when we look for a physical explanation of this first light, I believe there's another answer as to its source, and that's what Scripture tells us. Because I believe this first light is different, was a different light than what we observe today. And that's not to say I'm just, that I'm not saying it was just a spiritual light, that it's something of another realm. There was certainly a physical aspect to it. But like I said, it's a different form of light. It's still a light that illuminates. It still fills the darkness. Scripture tells us that. But it's also the light that is the physical manifestation of God's glory. That light that is described by John in his vision of the new Jerusalem. Where again, there is no sun, there is no moon. In other words, the light that God created on the first day, which in fact was his first act of creation as we read in the Genesis account, this first act was for him to speak into existence the physical manifestation of his glory, which filled the void and therefore became separate from the dark. It was the light. His, it was actually his manifestation, his glory, that was that light that separated from the dark. And we see the physical manifestation of light whenever some, in the scriptures whenever someone encounters the glory of God. We're going to look, just, let's just look at two examples. We have one from the Torah. We also have one from the New Testament where we see this illuminating light of God's glory surrounding his messengers. Exodus 34, 29 through 30 says, Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he, he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So there we see Moses interacts with God, the light of God's glory on, God, on his messenger, on his mediator with the children of Israel was still on him, and the, pe and the people could physically see it. Likewise, we see messengers surrounded and bathed in this light when we read of the account in Luke 2, 8 through 9. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now in these encounters with God, or really, again, God's messengers, the reaction of the people we see when they, when they witness this light, when they physically see it on these messengers, what is, what's the reaction? What well, says in both accounts, the reaction is fear. The people fear, they dread this light. Those who saw it reflected on Moses' face were afraid to come near him. And the shepherds who saw the angels surrounded by the glory of the Lord, it says, were greatly afraid. This suggests that although the light produced by God's glory is physical, it is something that we, we physically see, 
It's different than the light we see on a day-to-day basis, whether that light is produced by the sun, by a light bulb, or by a candle. This is a very different light. Those other sources of light don't cause fear to us. For the light from these sources, they're not reflections of God's glory. It's only when we see the glory of God, and even it's not even the direct light. Again, it's just a reflection of his glory on his messengers. Great trepidation falls upon the people. Now, if we look further into the scripture, we see the glory of the Lord not only being associated with the new light, in the new, with the light in the new Jerusalem or upon his messengers, but Yeshua as the Logos, as the word, is also referred to being this light. We see Yeshua in the creative work of God being referred to as the light. In John 1, 3 through 5, it says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And likewise, we see him, we see Yeshua being called the reflected brightness of God's glory in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged out sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And finally, Yeshua is said to provide us the light of knowledge regarding God's glory in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus it's clear that God, through the word, through Yeshua, illuminates the world by providing a window onto his glory. Although we may have lost access to God's glory when Adam and Eve fell. Remember, it it talks about how their nakedness was uncovered, or that... They're, they're, that all of a sudden they realized they were naked. There was an uncovering there. They didn't recognize it before. It's likely because this illuminating light was no longer on them. But even though we lost that access, God was not willing to have us cast from his presence for all time, for eternity. In fact, if you look at the casting out of Adam and Eve from the garden, casting them away from the tree of life, what was the reason for doing that? Well, Scripture says the reason was because he did not want man to live forever. And specifically, he didn't want them to live forever outside of his glory. And that's why we see, even though it's a punishment, there is actually mercy in the punishment of being cast out. Because if we had been allowed to continue to live forever, continue to have access to the tree of life in our now sinful nature, we would have remained divorced from God forever. 
There would have been no motivation for us to seek to repent and to seek his presence again if we had always continued to live. And as I referenced at the beginning of this message, in looking at the scriptures as a whole, we have a story that starts and it ends in Eden. It begins with humans as the apex of God's creation. I say that because why? Because we are the ones, we are unique in all of his creation in that we are created in his image. We are created in the Imago Dei, meaning that we are dwelling in the light of God's glory. And it ends with humans redeemed from their fall into sin and death, and once again, what? Living in the presence of his glory. The story between these two bookends is what God has done to bring us back into his glory, and how different people have responded to the light when they have encountered it. For we know that there are two types of people in the world who are differentiated by one thing. How do they respond to the light? John 3, 19 through 21 tells us. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So the people who come to the light, which again, of course, is Yeshua, the Messiah, how do they come to the light? They do so by what? Doing truth. Notice that the scripture does not say it's those who believe the truth or who accept the truth come to him, but it says those who do the truth. It requires action of the truth. Or in other words, it requires one to act in a way that is right and that is just. Intellectual consent to a set of doctrinal beliefs or agreement with selected verses in scripture is not what brings us closer to the light. Rather, it's our actions, it's our deeds, it's our works that draw us to the light so that they may be seen. And seen not for our own glorification, not for our own merit, like, hey, you know, I act righteously and therefore this light brings glory to me. But rather, these deeds are drawn to the light to which they are alike. The light already exists, then when we act in righteous ways as instructed by God, we mirror that light. We become a reflection of that light. And the connection between our actions and the light is important to recognize. For anyone who follows Yeshua is called to be a light on a hill to the world around them. But if this is the case, we have to ask, what does that actually mean? What must we do to be this light to the world? Simply believing, simply consenting, isn't being a light to the world. You have to do things. When Yeshua's call for us to be a light on on a hill, we see what it entails. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 states, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Yeshua there tells us that our good works are a light to the world because they glorify God. 
what we do in the world and our day-to-day routines, our day-to-day lives and our interactions with other, that's what our lampstand is. Our lampstand both to our brothers and sisters in Yeshua, but also to those who do not know the Messiah and those who outright reject him. But it's also as well a light to, the strain, to every stranger we encounter who's standing with God we cannot even guess. The brightness, the intensity, and the magnitude of the flame on that lampstand will be based upon how you go out in your day-to-day life and how you interact with others. Will it be an intense flame that pierces the darkness and draws the lost to it because it radiates with love and peace and joy and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance? When when Paul lists those as the fruits of the Spirit, that's our light. That's That's what he's talking about. Or is your flame going to be a faltering flicker that looks like it's blowing, you know, a candle that's blowing in the wind and you never know when it's about to go out? Is that going to be your light because it's either hidden or it's about to be snuffed out because of lust and impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, and drunkenness? I think it's important to note that Yeshua's call for us to be a light on the hill in Matthew 5 comes right before he begins teaching about the law and how the commandments are to be rightfully carried out. He follows his call to be a light by first stating that he has come to fulfill the Torah. And we've taught this before, but what does it mean to fulfill the Torah? It means to properly interpret and apply its instructions. So he says, I've come to interpret, apply the Torah. And then he shows how the law is what? He shows, he teaches that the law is against hatred. It's against lust, against speaking meaningless words, against retaliation, and it's against seeking harm against your enemies. In contrast to these things, we understand that good works, according to the law, are centered on living in harmony with your brother or your neighbor, being exclusively committed to your marriage, speaking honestly, forgiving others out of love, and even loving those who hate you, who are against you. If you can live a life to these principles, people are certainly going to take note, because you're, you're going to stand out as a peculiar person. And they're going to wonder what causes you to live such a life, and how are you able to pull it off? How are you able to maintain peace and joy when they see that people hate you and persecute you, when they see that your life isn't going well all the time, but you still carry that peace of God, that shalom, uh, and that joy that comes from the shalom of God with you. After all, the world is very familiar with sin. And if you just look at the nightly news, you will see those who express hate and, and act upon it. And you will see those who are driven by their lusts and their own selfish ambitions. In contrast, the person who can demonstrate love despite being wronged, the person who is able to forgive, that's the person who's truly unique and will stand out. So I was working on this last night, I recalled, and I had to go look up his name because I couldn't remember, but I remembered the news story. It was from three years ago, back in 2019. I don't know how many of you remember the the killing of Botham Jean. Botham Jean was... um, um, a man in Dallas 
and he was a black man, and he was in his own apartment one night, minding his own business, doing absolutely nothing wrong, and unfortunately he was shot. And the reason he was shot is because there was an off-duty Dallas police officer, sir, who lived in the same apartment complex, and she got off on the wrong floor. And she was thinking it was her own floor, went to her apartment, thinking she was opening it up, went into it, saw this man, still thinking it was her apartment, pulled her gun and shot him dead. Now, I, the story, what's remarkable in terms of, again, someone being a light and the forgiveness, and this is what I remembered in the, was the courtroom scene, is that after this um, off-duty officer was sentenced, and she was sentenced for murder, for she got 10 years in prison, the brother of the man who was killed, Brant Jean, at the sentencing, he asked the judge, can I be permitted to hug this woman who killed his brother? And, she told, and he told her that he forgave her. That will stick in my mind the rest of my life. Because how outstanding of example of someone reflecting the light of God's glory there. Of being able to forgive someone who actually murdered your brother. Again, she didn't do it out of malice. But it was still, she killed. I personally, well, I hope I would be that, I could be that person. I don't know if I could. Until, and unless I was actually confronted, I don't know how I would respond. Yet, I hope that I would be able to respond that way. And we know that this, that this Brant Jean, this younger brother, who forgave the murder of his brother, we know that he was reflecting the glory of God because what he said to her when he hugged her is he said, actually, I don't desire to see you go off to jail. What I desire is that you give your life to Christ. And this is the key point. If our good works are to be a light to others that show the glory of God, they must be done for his sake or for the sake of the other, not for our own. If that young man was simply trying to, for whatever reason, show forgiveness so that he would receive glory, if he had that in mind, so that he would be seen as this very compassionate, very gracious, very forgiving individual, that's not going to be reflecting his light. But you can see he had a true concern for that woman and a love for her because he just wants her to find forgiveness in Yeshua and a new life in him as well. Now, Yeshua continues in Matthew 6 to discuss the three pillars within Judaism that are seen as demonstrating one's good, work, one's good, work, one's good works. That's almsgiving, it's praying, and it's fasting. And of course, we know what Yeshua taught on those. He made it clear what? That all three of these things are, are to be done not to give glory to oneself, but to give glory to God. If they're done simply to receive praises from others in the community, if they're done to express one's righteousness in, compassion, in comparison to others, Yeshua is clear, God doesn't accept those works. In fact, Yeshua instructs all three types of these good works are to be done in private and without announcement. Now, at first it may seem strange. He's teaching such things to be done in private 
Because why? He just told his followers what? Be that light on the hill so that your good works could be seen by all men. So one might think, you know, put yourself, first century uh, a Jew, you've been taught by the, the Pharisees about what are good rights, what are good acts, how do you do that? And, okay, so Yeshua said, so you've been taught, what are good rights and acts? Almsgiving, prayer, fasting. And Yeshua said, just make it a light on a hill, but then he comes around and says, but don't do it publicly. And again, this is, well, why would this be? Because if our works are to glorify God by reflecting the light of his glory, they can again be done for our own self-glorification or our own self-promotion. It's clear that if you live out a life truly of love for your neighbor, you don't have to make displays of it. It will just naturally come out. And again, because it's different. It's not what the world expects. People are going to notice. And I think it's interesting that Yeshua criticizes these three types of good works. I think it's done not only because they were, again, common ways in which the Jewish leaders and others promoted their self-sense of righteousness to the community, but I also think it's because when it comes to what Yeshua was teaching in those chapters, read chapters Matthew 5 through 7. These are the easy things to do. Even when done in secrecy, which again would indicate a more righteous heart that's doing the right, these acts for the right reasons, that right reason being out of a love for God or a love for your neighbor, while those act, these actions may not always be pleasant, they are relatively easy things to do. If we have our heart and our mind, if we put our heart and our mind to them, we usually can do them with a little self-discipline and perseverance. That's all it takes to fast, to be um, dutiful in your prayer life, to give alms, to, to give to the poor. In contrast, the other things Yeshua teaches about in these chapters, demonstrating love and demonstrating forgiveness to others, again, especially those that you know have wronged you, those who have hurt you, that's difficult. Controlling your anger, dampening the lusts of your flesh, overcoming your pride when you feel you've been insulted or disrespected, tempering the inclination to exaggerate or to make promises you never intend to keep just to make yourself look good in the eyes of others. Those are the things that are difficult to keep. And really, compared to you know, almsgiving, praying, and fasting, that's easy compared to this other stuff. And unfortunately, I have to admit that I see this very problem too often in Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots Movement. There's a great focus by many on the outward keeping of Torah. But there is often bitterness and outright nastiness towards others if they are not in lockstep with, their, with the same understanding of the Torah. Keeping Kashrut, the feast, the Sabbath, all of these are trumpeted by messianic and hebrew roots communities but if you stop and think about it while it is certainly important to keep them they are commanded by god and they have purposes they are the easier commandments to keep at the end of the day not eating pork giving up selfish it's not a difficult thing to do 
regardless of how much you like to eat, you may have liked to eat that stuff at one point. And even maybe you did struggle when you had to give it up. You saw it as a great sacrifice. But, it was e- but it's relatively easy. Likewise, setting aside one day of the seven, it's not a difficult task. It just takes a little bit of self-discipline. As far as the feast goes, the feasts go, they're supposed to be joyous and for our benefit. So oftentimes, once we actually start doing them, because we, we recognize the commandment, they actually become a blessing, so there's no burden in keeping them at all. Yet many messianics and many in the Hebrew Roots movement prop themselves up for keeping these commandments as though they are somehow better. They act as if they have arrived. They've achieved a higher, more transcendent understanding of God because they keep them. And in line with this attitude, they look down on anyone who doesn't keep them or doesn't keep them in the same fashion as they do. And this can go in any direct, this attitude can go in any direction you can imagine. Followers of Yeshua, in a messianic way, they often look down upon true Christian brothers and sisters, those who truly do love Christ, but they've been, they've, they've been miseducated, they've been taught wrong, they haven't had their eyes open to the scriptures, but they judge them, and they look down as though they're lesser. That person may have a more loving heart and be doing more in the world to show God's light by giving alms, by, by helping the poor, by proclaiming the good news than one who just in their own house or in their own little community keeps the Sabbath, doesn't eat, or, you know, follows kosh root. They maybe do more, but, they, we, but there's a tendency to look down on those. There's a tendency in these movements to look down upon the Jews who know Christ and have accepted him because they still keep too many rabbinic traditions, too, man, too many man-made traditions. If God didn't command it specifically, we shouldn't be doing it. So they look down on them. There's a tendency to look down on those not raised in Judaism by some because they don't know all the traditional prayers and songs, or maybe they stumble and they stutter when they try to read through the Hebrew. And therefore, you, well, you weren't born, you weren't raised in it, and so some ele- try to elevate themselves up as though they're superior simply for those reasons. And there's those who look down on non-ethnic Jews. Again, Messianic Jews who were born Jewish, raised Jewish, came to accept Christ, but then they still look down upon those who were not born and raised as Jews as they're just silly Gentiles. You're confused about your identity. You're confused about your obligations to God. Because remember, there are Messianic Jews who teach against what we teach here that say, no, keeping a Torah is still only for those born Jewish. You Gentile followers of Christ, it's great that you follow the Mashiach because we do believe he is the Mashiach, but the Torah is not for you. It's just for us. And then they, so they look down upon people like us who think Torah is for everyone. And if these are the attitudes witnessed by those outside of Messianic Judaism and outside of the Hebrew Roots movement, or even if these are the attitudes that are witnessed by the different factions within it towards each other, there is so much infighting among Messianic Jews and the Hebrew Roots people. I say it all the time, go on a message board uh, um, in these communities. What is, you don't see a lot of building people up, lifting people up, prayer requests, praising God. What do you see? Fighting and arguing and tearing each other down. You're not doing it right. You're not following this commandment right. You follow the Jewish traditions too much. You don't follow them enough, and on and on and on. And if that's how we look, if that's what is 
what's blowing our flame of light all around? Is it any wonder why we're viewed as a fringe movement by both Jews and Christians? What light is there to be drawn to, the, to, to what we believe is the right way of living if this is the common attitude found among these movements? Where is the love for others in such judgments and quarreling? How can God's light shine forth in such communities? Why would a Christian want to keep the commandments when they look at us? And when I say us, I'm not talking about Rosh Pinah. I don't think we're like this. But I'm talking about Messianic Judaism, which, like it or not, you are part of. If they look at it, or they look at the Hebrew roots, which we're identified as being part of, when a Christian looks at it, why do they want to keep the commandments when all they see is fighting over how do you keep them? And fighting and saying, well, you're not keeping it right, therefore you're not right with God. Why would a Jew want to have fellowship with, with non-Jews if this is what they see? If you're raised in Judaism, you come to accept Yeshua as the Messiah, but then you look at the Hebrew roots, you look at a messianic congregations as a whole, you see the movement, and again, all you see is this quarreling and this fighting and this judging. Why would you want to join yourself to that? And especially in, because of what they're coming out of, why would I want to tie myself to a non-Jew? Why would those not raised in Judaism want to embrace its traditions if this is what they see? And why would non-ethnic Jews want to be joined to ethnic Jews if they're treated as second-class citizens as they are by some people in, in the Messianic movement? If you're going to be a light for Yeshua and reflect his glory, you're going to have to do the, the difficult good works, not just the easy ones. Again, it is the right thing to do. It is a blessing to you for doing it. And if you, I believe you will receive crowns in heaven because you keep kashru, you worship on the right Sabbath, and you keep his feasts. I'm not taking anything away from that. But again, those are the easy works. Start focusing on the hard works, the ones that require humility and self-sacrifice, the ones that require you to forgive others, even when you're offended by them, even when they when they did really bad harm to you. You have to be able to give of yourself willingly, even in those circumstances. These are the good works that will reflect the glory of God. And especially if you can show how such works are the products of the instruction of Torah. If you can show, I do these good works because this is what God has commanded, and I do these because this is what my Mashiach who died for me, how he have lived his life. That's why I do these works. All the more they're going to be drawn to your light then, that light of, God, of the glory of God that you're reflecting. And they're going to be drawn both to Yeshua and to his law. In writing his epistle to the communities in Rome, Paul made a similar critique regarding the Jewish brethren and their failure to be light to the nations due to their inability to do good works according to the law, despite what they might teach and what they might carry out in zeal for the traditions of men that were added to that law. Romans 2, 17 through 24, and 10, 1 through 3 state, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light 
to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Paul recognized that although the Jews had the Torah, and because of their possession of it, they were supposed to teach it to the nations. But he's, but he's saying here in these verses that they had utterly failed to keep it and be a light to the blind nations so that they would also be drawn to God. And in failing to keep the Torah, the descendants of Israel not only brought the promised curses upon them, because after all, at Paul's time, for six centuries, they've all been living in exile throughout the world. They'd lost their national sovereignty. But they also failed in their appointed mission to be a light to the nations, to be a beacon on the hill for all of those whom God would call out from the nations. I have to imagine that as Paul wrote these words in Romans, he had to have had Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9 on his mind. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him, and that great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law which I set before you this day. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. In making his critique, Paul understood that the failure of the Jews to be a light to the nations was not a problem rooted in knowledge or in zeal. After all, his knowledge and his zeal for the Torah could not be surpassed in his generation. Yet until his own journey to Damascus, when he finally encountered the light and the glory of Yeshua, and, he, and if you remember, he was physically blinded by that light, Paul did not realize that he had been blind to that light all along. Instead of knowledge or zeal, it was a matter of the heart that determines one's ability to reflect the light of God's glory through deeds grounded in love, love for both God and love for one's neighbor. This is why Paul writes the following in Romans 2, 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Those who belong to Yeshua, because their hearts have been circumcised, must, re must reflect his glory by demonstrating through their words and their actions 
that they possess the self-sacrificing agape love to which we're called. This requires us to be a unique and a peculiar people in this world. We're ones that do not walk in step with the standards and the assumptions of the world. We don't walk in what's considered natural by the world, because the world looks at human behavior and says, well, it's just human nature. It's just natural. That's what humans do. But you have to remember, it, what's natural is fallen. We're in a fallen world, so when we look at human behavior, we say, well, that's just how humans behave. That's, that's our nature. It's our fallen nature. That's not acceptable. I've heard in conversations, I've read on message boards and articles over the years, I've even been told this directly, that the expectations that God has set forth in his commandments, they're not reasonable because of how he created us. They actually put the blame on him. For example, I've heard many times that, dis- that, desiring, that a man desiring multiple, women, multiple female partners the natural order of things. We see it in nature among many animals. And thus, the instructions by Yeshua regarding lust, they're not reasonable, they're not achievable. Now those who don't know God and who argue from an evolutionary standpoint that there's a biological drive in men to procreate with as many women as possible so that they have offspring, I don't agree with them, but at least from their point of perspective, their reasoning, I can understand where they're coming from. But what I don't understand is those individuals who belong to God who make a claim that this is simply how God made man or this is how God made me. The reality is that he didn't make men this way. He didn't make men to want to desire multiple partners. Yeshua made it clear that that's not how man was originally made. Mark 10, 6 through 8 says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Yeshua, the Word, who was there at the beginning, he's the spoken voice from which creation leaps forward. He was in the act of creation. He makes it clear that men were, t- were created to be monogamous and joined to w- only one other flesh. As such, it's clear that any desire a man has to be with multiple women is not the result of the creation and certainly not the result of the creator. But it's the fall in the garden that puts such a desire in, in, in flesh. It is the lust of the flesh that arise from our enslavement to sin and to death that causes a man to want more than one partner through their li- throughout their lives. Knowing that they're under the penalty of death is perhaps why they are driven to procreate and have as many children as possible because they know they're going to die. Therefore, they're consumed by legacies and leaving a legacy. And one way you leave a legacy is certainly through your children. But this is a desire like all desires. And I'm just using this as one example. I could point to almost any sin and make the same argument. But this is a desire like all desires that are not of God. They have to be overcome by the Spirit in our walk with Yeshua. And of course, this, like I said, applies to all desires of the flesh that are with both men and with women. So even if we're mocked, those who follow Yeshua and try to be obedient to Torah, if we're mocked for being antiquated or naive, 
if we are seen as weak, if we're seen as ignorant or uninformed, we are to reflect his glory and be seen as that light on the hill for those who do not love the darkness, so that they are drawn out of that very darkness. For it is only those who love the darkness that will do the mocking. They will be the ones who deride us. They will be the ones to reject us and never receive our, the, the acts of love that we're, that we're demonstrating through a faithful walk of Torah as Yeshua taught us. And they do so, they mock, they reject because they fear the light. You think about examples where we see this. Um, former Vice President Mike Pence, he talked about, I don't know if you remember this, it's probably a couple years ago again, he talked about, he always lived by the rule that in his work, in, or in whatever, he would never meet one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors with a woman. And he was mocked for it. He was criticized, and I even saw Christians criticizing him for it. Saying, well, you're denying opportunities to women. If a woman staffer um, um, it can't go out to lunch with you one-on-one, -on -one, but a male staffer can, well, that male staffer has more of a chance to bend your ear, to gain favor with you, and maybe get promoted. And so it's unfair. It's, um, you know, it's discriminatory. And then I saw others Mike, mock Mike Pence, because he is kind of a stiff guy. I mean, I, I like Mike Pence, but, you know, he, you know, he comes off kind of bland and stiff. And they were mocking him like, oh, yeah, well, you think you're such a chick magnet or bay magnet that all these women are going to be flocking to you. And that, that's, they completely missed the point. Mike Pence, as a follower of Yeshua, understood the sin and the temptation that's in his flesh. And though while there may be zero intention to ever betray his wife, he knows that sin can creep in if you open the door, and so just don't even open that door. But you see, someone like him is mocked for, for that. You see someone like Richard Dawkins. He's a biology um, professor at the University of Oxford. Rit wrote a book called The God Delusion. He consistently mocks Christians, but really all people who believe in God, even Jews and Muslims. But he, but he usually focuses on Christians as being ignorant, as being stupid for believing in creation rather than evolution, as being out of touch, out of step, that we belong to four centuries ago and not to the modern world. I brought up about Brand Jean, the young man who demonstrated God's glory when he forgave the woman who killed his brother. There were those who criticized him for showing such an act of forgiveness at the time. There were BLM advocates that said he was perpetuating a plantation mentality by forgiving a white officer that killed his brother. And it was wrong for him to do that. Because they didn't understand, they couldn't see that glory of, the, of, the, of God's light reflecting on him to show such an incredible act of forgiveness. But that's what happens. Now I know I've gone on several rants this morning and looking at how the disciples of Messiah fail to reflect the light of God's glory in our walk. But I hope they're seen not as simply me venting about frustrations, but they're seen as a wake-up call for each of us. And not because we fall into the extreme examples that I was using, that I was referencing, but because each of us needs to evaluate how bright or how dull our lampstand is as a beacon for God. How much does our flame 
burn? Are we putting a veil over it? Do we do things that hide it? Do we put it under a bushel basket? Do we not stand firmly and therefore when the wind blows, the winds of the world blow, it flickers and again, you don't know, is it going to stand there strong or is it going to fade? You know, is it going to be snuffed out? It's the small things we do each day. Do we gossip about friends and family members? Do we express anger towards others because we feel we've been disrespected? Do we demonstrate apathy by not listening to the concerns of others? Do we laugh at inappropriate jokes that are made at the expense of others? Do we make meaningless promises we never intend to keep? Do we come up with excuses to avoid helping others? Do we quarrel with others because our pride has been hurt? Do we make assumptions about the character or others simply because they disagree with us? These are the types of daily actions that dampen our light in which we need to rid ourselves so that our lamps are not extinguished altogether. The risk is too great to do harm, not just to ourselves, but to God's name and to his glory if we allow our light to be covered by a failure to do good works in love. Remember what Paul says in Romans 2, 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The answer to this, of course, the answer to this, of course, is to walk in love towards our neighbor. Just as oxygen is necessary for a flame to continue burning, agape love is necessary for our light to continue burning. We need to look for opportunities to speak encouraging words to each other, to forgive when we feel insulted or injured, to demonstrate compassion by listening to others, to share our joy with others to speak clearly and honestly with each other, to ask others if they need help, and to seek shalom between our brothers and sisters. In conclusion, let us listen to the words of Paul in his letter to the Assembly of Ephesus, as he speaks about our need to be children in the light who have left the darkness and the world behind us. Ephesians 5, 1-14 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness or, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Amen. It's our duty to praise the Master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. 
He's not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the King over kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven, establishes earth's foundation, the seat of his glories in the heavens above. And the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our King, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is none other. Amen. Together. I woke up this morning uh, with a cool praise song on my heart and woke up singing it this morning and then all morning long I uh, 